Um, we really wanted to be different again to punch out where our brand lies and if we're not going to be innovative and take risks um, and do things differently ourselves for our own conference then I really think it would be hypocritical of us to ask industry to do the same. So I know that um, we really put people out of their comfort zones and um, this will be a conversation point for a long period of time but I also see that as our role. Our role is to spark conversations, it's to challenge us. Kiora. I'm Troy, here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today we're talking with Hira's CEO, Troy Coyle, and Metals New Zealand Chief Executive, Nick Collins. Together we'll be doing a retrospective of the first of our inaugural Hira Future Forums and really trying to cover off what were two fantastic days where we looked at rediscovering some of the challenges that our industry is facing and coming up with ways that we can solve those challenges and help our industry be more future focused. So I guess the best place to start off with is having a bit of a discussion around uh, the Hero Future Forum and Troy, I guess what your overarching vision was for that and why such a big pivot from the usual metal conferences that Hero has done in the past. Mm-hmm. I think the that we actually suffered a little bit of brand damage with our previous um, conferences because we were getting really low attendance and probably... Um, it was really hard to cater to our membership, which consisted of fabricators and design engineers. So it's hard to find a commonality of interest there. Um, And what we wanted to do was really um, create our brand mark and differentiate Hira in the way that that we have created the brand um, basis for Hira which is very much around innovation and the future focus with research and innovation um, underpinning everything that we do. So we really wanted to create a wow factor around, okay, this is what could be potential outcomes or outlooks for the future and some of those things the industry isn't prepared for in terms of its mindset Um, And some of those things industry is already thinking about. But the overarching goal was really to put people out of their comfort zone to challenge themselves around some of the areas that perhaps we're not really thinking or talking about as much as we should. And it was really the, the impetus for the conference was to focus on innovation and to um, create provocative conversations. Same as during the pot, we want to really talk about the things that potentially aren't coming up regularly in conversation and we're not challenging ourselves as much as we should on. I also wanted to make sure that we weren't having a technical focus, that we had more generic um, conversations around the overarching issues rather than the specific technical issues. And I think that our conferences will, in terms of the future forums, really should have that focus and our technical discussions should be separate and much more regular than the future forums. 
Yeah, I think we started off the day with Nation Breakfast, which had a real focus around hearing straight from young engineers, young aspiring engineers, what they thought about our industry, uh, what would inspire them to be part of our industry in the future, and also some of the roadblocks that they experience in dealing with industry in the little experiences they've had. And I think it also indicated that there is a bit of a gap. You know, we're we're hearing about all these amazing future-focused things that companies are exploring overseas and we're not doing them. And you can see how there's that gap where young students aren't seeing how they can make a difference and all of the fun and cool things that they could experience if they were in our industry, if we had the right tools around us and technology to foster that. Uh, why why was it so important, do you think, Hera led that conversation at that Nation Breakfast and got those students in, Troy? I think predominantly because we weren't hearing the voice of the new entrants or potential new entrants into our industry. We have a lot of discussion happening where we ourselves are hypothesizing around how millennials view the industry or what attracts them or what stereotypically they are like. And we hear that from consultants, but you rarely hear that directly from the voice of the people who we're purporting to represent. Um, So I think that was really important that we actually gave them a voice. And I I was very nervous about whether they could actually stand up to the challenge of facing the industry and being quite brutally honest. And they really rose to that challenge and were really brave in in saying um, exactly what their impressions of the industry were, but also representing how they see themselves and how they see the industry. I I thought they were really brave. Yeah, I I agree. There were some really interesting insights. I think what I also appreciated was the pushback from partly the audience and also Mike Hutchison in his uh, presentation because, you know, Mike being the language man and the importance for him of respecting language, Barry's response to the morning session around, well, actually, it's really important to understand the complexity and bury yourself in it and kind of understand where the pathway is forward. So there was some, I mean, to me, there was interesting contrast in the day from how the students had started us off to the response from the older heads in the floor, but also Mike's presentation, because I think he... He gave us some insights into how to communicate from his, you know, and a man with vast experience. I mean, he headed up Saatchi's in New Zealand for quite some time. And, yeah, I think gave the audience some really neat pointers and kind of pushed back a wee bit about, you know, Googling the just the um, – kind of superficial level that people can operate with Google and with texting, whereas for him, you know, the depth and the language really important in how we communicate. Yeah, I do agree as a marketer. I think it's all in the language and choice. I I have to wonder, though, about that morning session. I, I feel like there was still, even though each side had their opinions, th- there was no 
openness, I think, to come to a middle resolution and actually your intern for the Sustainable Steel Council, I think, summed that up really amazingly when she said, look, I have my views about what I think about your industry and what I would be looking for in a leader or in a work environment. And I understand that obviously you're coming from a place of experience and and what you had to do to get to the point where you are at, but surely there must be a middle ground. And I think perhaps this is what our industry is missing, is the ability to at least change a bit so that we are fostering these engineers into wanting to come into our industry. Because if we don't start to give a little, I feel like we're going to be in trouble because we have a skills gap issue now and if we don't start somehow trying to address it, we're going to we're gonna run into problems because eventually it's going to come bite us on our butt, isn't it? I felt that the students were telling us something really important and we weren't actually listening. We were getting quite defensive because what we were hearing was it's challenging how we are currently operating and challenging, I guess, the level of res- perceived respect that there is for people who've got a lot of experience in the industry. And I don't believe that the students were actually intending or saying any of that. What they were really representing is what they value, what they're looking for, and what I believe the industry is really not thinking satisfactorily on is the fact that it's no longer a seller's market. Um, It's actually a buyer's market. There is going to be a massive shortfall in in capable um, staffs being able to enter into the industry. And unless we massively change that approach and um, change the mindset around how we view the next generations, we're really not going to be attractive as an industry to them and it's going to be at our loss, not theirs but ours. Um, And that's where I think that conversation was really good because we very much focused on their voice and I I know that there were members of the audience who were feeling quite challenged by that but actually that's really important that that voice was able to be represented and whether or not people were able to take that on board I hope that they will be able to reflect on it and think about that in the context of it's actually all of the power is going to be with the next generation because we are going to be desperate to get good quality people. They are not going to be desperate to enter into our industry. So here's the challenge. And and we had this conversation over the dinner table and I was sitting next door to Charles Clifton and I always take the opportunity to have a little dig at Charles as to how tertiary institutions tend to tie their learning programs to the past rather than prepare young minds for the future. Um, and to his credit, I mean, Charles provided a different perspective, and I and I think we 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 need. Um, the challenge is how do we find the balance moving forward? Because, you know, we need our future engineers to understand that depth of knowledge that particularly has got the steel sector to where it is. You know, the reason we in in some parts of, you know, economy and society don't have a high profile is because we d- the sector does things really well. And we're not fast and loose with design. You know, it's 
based on robust foundations. And other sectors of the economy can be quite creative about the attributes of their products and materials. And steel doesn't suffer from that. It has got, you know, very robust foundations to excuse the pun. And so how do you, in engaging young minds, ensure that, you know, all that deadly boring information, which is so critically important to the built environment, we get one chance to do it and to do it well. So, you know, and this is the challenge in my mind is, and particularly the role of universities, is how do they continue to provide that really robust, um, detailed kind of information and training or access to that information, while at the same time appealing to, you know, the younger generation that tend to have a lower attention span and probably are more thinking about it from their perspective rather than, you know, New Zealand Inc.'s perspective. So that's, and it was an interesting conversation. And I think... I actually think, I I would like to challenge ourselves about how we think about the importance of the way that... um, information is learned and also um, co-created within a work environment because I query, you know, we went through school and we had calculators and we used to complain around why did we have to do logarithmic tables when we had calculators that could do the same. And now the next generation is talking about why do we need to do all of this when we can just Google it? And I think they've got a really good point. because we're making an assumption there that the modern way of solving problems is inferior to the way that we're used to, which is very labour-intensive and old school. I don't know that there is the background there to support that their way is inferior. But one thing that I did want to discuss was I, one of the key takeaways I got from that morning session was how um, invigorated the students were saying they are by change. Um, and then later on with the conversation that Des had around how his innovations were all really being led by his younger team. So they were coming in with new ideas and new technologies able to implement those ideas. And I think that's where we are not appreciating the value that new people bring and I feel as though there is a bit of a challenge there because it is intimidating and there is an element of trust that you have to apply to new entrants um, around their ability to be discerning enough to manage quality and reliability at the the same time as innovation. Um, But what is a key takeaway for me is that there is a lot that we are doing that could be improved from a productivity point of view where we are just not able to keep up with the latest technologies whereas they are able to find an app to do pretty much anything um, and if if there isn't an app they know someone who can develop one. Um, so I think there is a missed opportunity and we're not really appreciating the value of of that approach and um, willingness to change because um, just as if 
I think of myself as an example, it is quite confronting because I think of myself as someone who is very innovative and um, able to adopt new technologies and kind of scan looking for new technologies. But I really cannot keep up with what these people are able to do. Um, even Michelle in organizing the conference, she found a online site that does table arranging and automatically something that I was really dreading because we switched around the table layout so frequently is all able to be done online. And we would never have even thought to look for an app that does that. And I think just going back to one of the comments that you said as well, Nick, I I don't know that they think about themselves because a clear takeaway I got was they actually don't care about the company as such. They care about how that company's helping the world. They've got this much more holistic view of their workplace and they really seem to be driven by how 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 their actions are impacting the world. And I think that's why things like climate change, sustainability were some of the key things that they were bringing up. Collaboration was important to them. And these are things that probably we as an industry are a little bit slow to be thinking about. So if we aren't thinking about the things that are important to them, it's unlikely that they'd be really endeared to come to our industry. The other part that I saw as a key takeaway is at the end when we asked them what they thought of our industry, they basically said, we don't know anything about you. And that was disheartening for me as a communicator, Uh, but I probably think that that just reflects we as an industry have never been really good at sharing our story and sharing the successes that we are doing in terms of sustainability, in terms of innovation, in terms of the great complex projects that we work on that change and build our communities. Uh, If we're not sharing those kinds of inspiring stories, the people that deliver those, then we're not inspiring these engineers to even want to work with us in the first place anyhow. So we're kind of dead in the water if we don't start telling our story a bit better and and sharing with them actually we are a fantastic industry and yes we are a bit clunky in some places but there are actually some of us that are moving with the times because we're not all like that Uh, so I think it's probably my pick up there was that we need to start thinking about what this generation is looking for so that we can start reflecting the stories that endear them to want to be part of our industry. I get that, but to me, once again, it's balance. And, you know, I'm reminded of a Maori proverb about mm. the kumara. The mm. kumara doesn't need to tell people how sweet it is. One appreciates the sweetness mm. when one gets to eat the kumara. And I think New Zealanders, and particularly my generation, um, were all, always brought up to be modest around, you know, what we're doing and you know, tend to let things speak for themselves rather than speak for ourselves personally. So, you know, that's part of the challenge as well in terms of I I recognise we do need to tell our story better, um, but I'm also mindful and, you know, so other sectors of the economy that tend to be very good about telling people what they're going to do rather than what they've done and 
I don't know. It's just the way you're brought up and maybe some of yes. us are a bit old. But, it's comfort you know. level, isn't it? So yeah. we have, you know, we've gone from a generation very humble and now we've come to a generation that just wants information. And so there's got to be this middle ground where we both come together and give a little bit from both sides there. Otherwise, we're going to be in deadlock moving forward. And I think that's where moving into the 2020 Vision Conference, we started to open those perspectives up. We kicked off with Chris Rydell, who's a futurist, who spends half of his year, lucky man in Melbourne and the other half over in the States. And he's really sort of got to see, I guess, from a global perspective, some of the changes in technologies that are coming in. And whilst his conversation wasn't specifically on the metals industry, I think it gave a good lead in to the conference and sort of opened our minds up to the kind of things that maybe Hero was going to challenge our industry to think about. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed that and I thought that he had some excellent points. Um, the most prominent for me was around the data uh, and feeding the beast, as it were, that if we don't start putting data into these machines, we're not going to get the outputs. We need to better inform our decisions and what we do because I think our industry sometimes has this little weakness where we run our thinking based on assumption versus validating that assumption through data. Um, and I think that's where Hero plays a good role in terms of research and trying to put the numbers to some of the thinking. I think the LSCF or the Living Standards Framework report that we commissioned is a good example of trying to put some data behind something that seems probably scary and quite fluffy to a lot of our industry at the moment. Um, what was your thinking on the futurist and what he had to say? So I'd start by saying, you know, like any forecaster, whether it be weather or economic or whatever, you know, <laughs> Uh, only 50% will ever be right. And yes. the challenge for us is picking the right 50% to, um, you know, jump on the bus with. Um, you know, particularly around data, out, right throughout the building and construction sector, we are appalling at using data. Yet we have so much data, you know, right from the design phase. And, you know, I suppose the secret to artificial intelligence and, you know, a lot of design is likely to be replaced by artificial intelligence once we've worked out how we digitise all of that because the models will keep on improving. Um, yeah, I I mean, I, I enjoy listening to speakers like that. Um, but, yeah, the challenge for us is how do we sift through those threads? And, you know, and it, it's DES was a really good example because, see, I, I don't entirely agree with your comments there, Troy, about the youth being the driver because DES created the environment. He listened and he created the environment and he you know, his comment about software was they'd bought so much software that they'd never used, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, he's a courageous man. Um, but I suppose in, in his business, it was that, I mean, he started off by trying to work out how big the market was and was appalled at how lax 
the you know go- local government data systems were, and he solved that problem himself and comes back to intuition, well, how can I do this? He goes to all the distributors and find out how much product they're selling and builds a model himself. Um, so some of the data stuff's not complex, um, but if you don't have the intuition that comes from experience, you would have struggled to work out how to create a model of how big the market is. And that then drove you know, his whole kind of future program and working out and he couldn't work out you know do i have does the data show i've got two percent of the market or is it one percent or is it four percent and then he reflected on that and said well the opportunity is enormous so if i've only got one percent it's even bigger still um so yeah mm, i've probably said enough about that (laughs) I think we've got the benefit of having heard Des in our podcast interview previously where he did clearly say that actually he was himself hard to convince. It was actually his younger staff who were convincing him there was an opportunity and that initially, um, you know, he wasn't easy to get on board but um, they were able to convince him over time. So I think that's the opportunity is that the initial response tends to be um, a bit of pushback whereas maybe there's a massive opportunity if our leaders are much more open to looking at these new ideas and new ways of doing things, which may require us to invest a lot in software that we never end up using, but also the payoff from that may be a lot of learning that we can apply to other aspects of our business. But going back to um, Chris's presentation, what I really got out of that is um, the pace of change, things that we think for um, a, a technologies that really are only on the start of a steep incline um, are actually probably further along that incline than what we appreciate. So autonomous vehicles being one example where they, they are existing and are actually in operations in parts of the world um, and we're still you know, kind of struggling with the legislative and safety approaches of that. So someone has to sit in the car actually doing nothing because no one feels safe (laughs) with that car. Um, And I guess when we then go to Heiser's presentation where he was talking about, you know, the um, stuff that they're doing is – has got limits in terms of the applications because of the speed of that process and that if new technologies were developed with multiple world heads, um, perhaps that process could be sped up and then it becomes more of a viable construction process. I think that's the real challenge for us is to have the imagination to think about how quickly technologies improve and at what point on that curve do we actually start to interact with that new technology? Um, I can remember more than 10 years ago being working at the University of Wollongong in the ARC Centre of Excellence in um, Electro-Material Science and uh, they were very early adopters of 3D printing um, and were looking at really advanced applications of that for biomedical um, applications and at that time the 3D printers were hundreds of thousands of dollars and you could only um, get them for very constrained applications and capabilities um, and now when you look at a desktop 3D printer 
being able to do quite a lot of different things for a very cheap price, you start to um, realize looking back on that journey how um, rapidly actually those new technologies evolve and develop. And that's always something that we seem to be lacking the appreciation of is how swiftly these technologies can advance. Um, having said that, I think there's also a bit of a niche area for a futurist specific to building and construction to actually talk um, specifically about how AI, 3D printing, additive manufacturing, mass customization, modularization, all of those um, industry 4.0 can work within our industry because I think the closest um, example of that is um, the uh, videos online on YouTube that you can get which are looking at the future of manufacturing and the future of building and construction where um, one of the future scenarios is a world that's controlled by robots. Another is uh, a future where basically sustainability is what's driving our building and construction sector and the other is around the construction process becoming basically a manufacturing process. Um, I think it would be really I'd love to find an expert who can really talk specifically about our industry. Yeah, I do agree. There was that sort of link, missing link there about what that all means for us as an industry. And I think the highlights there that you've mentioned are a few things there. Firstly, we've got a leadership mindset change required so that our leaders today are thinking about innovation is not a cost only but as an opportunity so maybe protecting part of their budget for innovation versus really just concentrating only on business as usual because I think a lot of the questions that were coming out in the wash were um, the business case of buying this technology you know Des took that plunge and, he, and I guess there's a bit of risk in that um, but he was willing to take that risk and I think we as an industry probably aren't as we're a little bit risk adverse in that because it's a lot of money to spend and we don't know because there's no one out there who's proven it yet. So we would be the leaders trying to figure out if that's the right thing to do and likely we may make mistakes and buy software that we shouldn't have bought or whatever it might be. So there is that, um, I wouldn't, it's not really fear, but there is this sort of thinking where we'd rather wait until someone else proves this is a good idea before we jump in. Uh, and the other thing is, is uh, one thing that I took from Dears and Heiss is they've built teams who are just solely focused on future thinking. You know, what what will this look like? How does this scenario grow? And they've just got a group of people totally focused on that and I think that's also something our industry lacks and something we were trying to foster with our innovation ready set go program which was to build that mindset to build those teams because until we are protecting a part of our budget or our thinking towards these concepts I think it's going to be hard for our industry to uptake it within their organizations. I think all three of those presenters were great examples of business model innovation and so where they've actually gone in thinking that their business is 
primarily based on one thing and then finding that actually there's a business opportunity around these new technologies. So for highs around the software um, and for DES around the actual scanning process and building new businesses around that whole new so world for them. that's the advantage I guess of being the earlier adopter is that you can actually find that there's probably a market opportunity for you to be able to um, utilize the learnings that you've developed yeah I, I definitely I mean I took a lot away from um, that 2020 vision part of our conference we rounded out the day with um, a discussion with Alia, who um, is a fascinating woman who was captured in Syria. I, I think I think the room was really quiet when she came on the stage and started telling her story. And I think she was worried it was because she wasn't capturing our attention, but I think it was just trying to reconcile how she'd come up with her thinking based on her real life experiences. But in reflection from the Nation Breakfast, she brought a that consultant view on HR innovation and how we really need mechanisms and thinking around how we attract, retain and and really foster our workforce so that they are the people that speak for us and represent us and are driving our innovations within our organisations. That's probably another key linchpin in us becoming more innovative and future-focused too. And really breaking down that hierarchy too, that everyone has great ideas to contribute and that really everyone should be able to point out an opportunity and that um, discussion is taken seriously. The, the challenge for most of our businesses is, you know, how do we find the time to invest in the future when the day-to-day is demanding us to work quite long hours just to keep our heads in the same space. So it's that whole, you know, where are the opportunities to pivot and to do it in such a way that you don't destroy your existing business? Yeah, I mean, I could definitely understand that. But on the flip side, we could be thinking about what are the things that we're doing every day in our business as usual that we don't actually need to waste our time on. We seem to keep a lot of things going that perhaps we should just let go or park to the side so we can concentrate on other things. Um, I even just look in my daily work that I do, which, you know, is just around social media program and things like that. But I always felt like, oh, my day's so full. Like, how am I going to be doing all these future things? But maybe it's just about rethinking, okay, well, Thursday's going to be focused purely on the future. Or maybe it's, do I really need to be doing three tweets a day? Maybe I just do one and then give that other time to something else. So also I guess it's about looking back on our BAU and thinking about mm, what is necessary do we actually need to keep doing that? Are we just doing that because we've always done it or because it's necessary? And I think we'd probably find that there would be room for process change there to maybe free up some time. I don't know, but I can see it on my own personal day-to-day. I think Byron gave some really great examples there around inefficiencies that become quite embedded in, in a business. And it's only when a third party is able to look um, objectively at those and and implement new changes that you actually start to realise that there, those inefficiencies were there. Um, 
and he was specifically talking about new processes and software. Uh, so I guess the question is how frequently are businesses actually challenging themselves around their existing processes and whether there are opportunities out there to actually improve those on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I guess the end of the Future Forum, we summed up with the Nation Dinner. Now, this was a very different approach, I feel, than than how we've done our industry awards in the past. We introduced two new industry award categories, um, which were focused on innovation and also acknowledging our upcoming leading metalheads in industry, which I think was a nice little pivot towards thinking about our future. And um, we also had a very strong underlying theme there around sustainability, uh, which is part of our works in terms of aligning more with uh, the circular economy and also, you know, low carbon futures and things like that. So how did you guys feel about how that went? Well, I I think it played out really well. And I was pleased to see Scott Morrison from Fletcher Steel um, receive the Metalhead Award um, because he he's kind of been a rebel within that Fletcher business and driving a whole heap of change around better sustainable foundations in the business. And, yeah, it, it was good that he was recognised. Um, I think what pro- the evening for me ended up really strongly with the final award and recognising the work being done by the Robinson Institute, Vic Uni or McDiamond, I'm not quite sure which name belongs on that, um, where the person who received the award, and I'm sorry, I can't, Chris, Chris received his award, and, you know, clearly... You know, a scientist with kind of, you know, robust science background. But he spoke not like a scientist at all, but, uh, you know, in, in that he gave this very confident, passionate picture of the importance of steel and the importance of developing low-carbon solutions and the journey that they were on. And, you know, there was no uncertainty in the path he mapped out. He just pointed out that this is going to take time. And I think it's important that we continue to reflect on this because we are seen as being, you know, one of the two big, you know, carbon-embodied materials Um I have to say that most of the time the data quoted in New Zealand is incorrect because actually New Zealand steel's footprint is significantly smaller than the global steel footprint is. Um, But, you know, they're quite confident about the journey they're on. And I think that that's, you know, for me, um, we should all take heart that while we are part of the problem, we have a really good story in terms of the circular economy um, because because our materials have value, they're not thrown into landfill and they have a future life. Unfortunately, most of that future life's offshore rather than here, but, you know, that may well change. Um, And, you know, having addressed 
you know, and I think we've got some real challenges around how the steel sector moves from being a linear to a circular economy because it's not just around the recycling, it's around designing buildings differently for um, deconstruction or reuse before you get to actually returning the material to scrap. Um, but yeah, it, we are, I think, really well positioned as long as we're patient around that challenge of the solving the technological problem. And those guys were really confident about what they were doing. And yeah. as a New Zealander, that makes me feel really good. Pretty darn know? good, right? Yeah. I think I think that was indicated by the fact that everyone clapped when Chris said his speech. But what he was saying was you are an important part of New Zealand's economy. We just have to come up with a way where we're more sustainable and we're doing our part to make sure that we achieve that goal. I think he was really good on his heart story for sure and he knew his value proposition to his audience he was talking to, absolutely. We also made some big moves ourselves in terms of our menu and our entertainment and I did garner a lot of uh, responses around how our, um, our event was going to be very memorable if not for those sorts of things. Uh, wh why did we make those choices, Troy? What was the thinking behind that? Um, just going back to that conversation around the um, recipients of the awards, I think, and the focus on sustainability for the dinner, I think that um, we do have an embodied carbon issue, but overwhelmingly our sustainability um, conversation we've got actually a lot of positives to talk about. And um, on the life cycle side of things, steel has a really strong performance and we we need as uh, we need to change the conversations around from um, from embodied carbon into life cycle because it's there's no point looking at one point in time in the environmental impact of a building or a piece of infrastructure. It really has to be over the lifetime, and that's a conversation that isn't happening in New Zealand at the moment and I believe needs more attention. Um, and so I really was proud that we had some shining lights where New Zealand is actually a global leader um, and, and those two uh, recipients of the awards were demonstrating that. Our other um, recipient of the Keith Smith Award was also um, showcasing how New Zealand is actually pretty much an earlier adopter of 3D printing and how we've got a really high um, ratio per capita um, for 3D printing capability. So we've got some really great stories um, to talk about and we do make a massive contribution to the New Zealand economy in a broader sense. Um, so there's always going to be a role for steel. So we need to acknowledge that. Um, on the sustainability side and the theme for the conference, um, we really wanted to be different, again, to punch out where our brand lies and if we're not going to be innovative and take risks um, and do things differently ourselves for our own conference then I really think it would be hypocritical of us to ask industry to do the same. So I know that um, we really put people out of their comfort zones and um, this will be a conversation point for a long period of time but I also see that as our role. Our role is to spark conversations, it's to challenge us and um, on the sustainability theme, 
uh, we did cho- choose to follow some lead examples of um, internationally where award ceremonies have chosen to put the focus on um, the role of food in the production of carbon. And what we wanted to showcase was that all of our business decisions, including for us here are choosing to um, basically use a plant-based um, diet in the conference dinner actually has a massive impact not only in um, the conversations that it sparks but in the actual carbon content of the um, night. So we have to be conscious that um, if you aren't a climate deni- climate change denier, which I hope most of our members are not, um, then really the onus is on our businesses to change the way that we look at our contributions and how we govern ourselves to take accountability for improving our carbon performance, but also um, how we as individuals do that. And we really wanted to shine a light on um, that very issue. Um, also with Lung Song, um, which was the night's entertainment, um, I really like the idea of that crossover between um, science and the arts and how that can bring conversations in a different way, which we don't tend to have that interdisciplinary discussion, which again is a missed opportunity and something uh, that is the role of HERA is to really initiate collaborations and multidisciplinary approaches so that we come to holistic outcomes. So I'm, I'm actually really proud um, of the way that we were brave enough to do that because I did know we were going to ca- cop some flack for it. Um, and so, you know, I have to wear that on the chin, but I feel as though that's our role to do that. The other thing that I'm really proud of is the level of inclusion and diversity that we had in the conference. So we had a really good representation of women on our panels and amongst our speakers, plus obviously a range of ages and um, diversity. We really um, actively included um, the future Māori engineers and we also had Puhoro give a presentation at our conference um, to bring again a light to the issue that there is a low representation of both Māori and women in engineering and if that's not an issue for the industry to address I don't know what is yeah I think I think what we can say in summary of the future forum from breakfast through to the conference itself of 2020 vision to visualize the future and the nation dinner is that we really made some great in steps in terms of building a tribe of metalheads who together will successfully innovate so that we have a future. So I think uh, that it was a really successful event in terms of bringing everyone together. I'm very sad that we didn't have more of our industry leaders there, but maybe we have brought to light to the leaders who did attend that they have a role to play in terms of making sure that their colleagues and other business partners are part of that journey as well and come along in the future. Yes, I really loved Nick's presentation at the conference dinner in that regard. Yes. Thank you. 
So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Troy and Nick today. To me, this was a really great conversation to recap on some of the challenges that we're trying to address for our industry and to inspire them to think about what changes they can make in their businesses to be more prepared for the future.